Today we begin a brand new sermon series called uh, Extraordinary or Extraordinary, depending on where you sit with this word. Um, We're going to say it a bunch of different ways uh, because it applies in both senses. Uh, We long to live extraordinary lives, but in order to do so, we have to figure out where our lives have become ordinary and then apply a little extra to it so we become uh, extraordinary. Most of us live uh, pretty ordinary days. If we're honest with ourselves, we have ordinary hours and ordinary minutes, and, and they lead to ordinary days and weeks and months. And, and before we know it, we, we can look back and, and look at some pretty ordinary years of our life. We have these routines. You will wake up tomorrow, and you will do what you always do on Monday morning. For some of you, it's coffee. For some, it's a devotional. For some, you flip on Good Morning America. Whatever it is you do, you begin your day, and then you go to the next step. And you show up to work, and you clock in and do your thing, and then you take care of those emails, and you have that meeting, and you get home, and you have what you always have for dinner on Monday night, because that's what Monday night is about. And then Tuesday starts the same, and it becomes a, a cycle. We have these routines, and, and then within these routines, within our ordinary lives, we have a struggle. We have struggles in this habit or this relationship. We have, uh, eventually, if we're not careful, we get into ruts where we feel like we're just doing the same thing over and over, and we feel like we can't quite get out of the cycle that we're in. And so then we ask ourselves, why are we up at 1 a.m. still watching Netflix when I should be sleeping, or, or why do I dream about vacation 51 weeks out of the year? Why do I feel the need to escape? Why do I feel the need to abandon this routine and this struggle? And why do I feel stuck in the ordinary existence of my life? So whether we're asking it or feeling it, I think what the real question is for many of us in our lives as we work through the ordinary is we ask the question, is this all there is? Is this all there is for my Tuesday? Is this all there is for my January? Is this all there is for my 2019? Is this all there is? And what if the answer is yes, this is all there is? So over the next five weeks, what we're going to do is make a case that every moment of every day is packed with potential for purpose and meaning and opportunity And that this is all there is, but there's no such thing as ordinary. And so we're going to look at relationships and work. We're going to look at recreation and even rest and figure out where in those things, where in the everyday rhythms of our everyday life do we have an extraordinary opportunity to live an extraordinary life. Today, we're going to start with sort of a a big picture zoom out. So what I want to do is turn to Luke uh, chapter 16. We'll put it on the screen so you can read along with us. You've been created and invited to live an extraordinary life. And so we're going to see that... um, a bit through what Jesus tells his disciples here. The scripture says, Jesus told his disciples that there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. He's scheming. And says he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second one, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little is also going to be dishonest with much. It's a really interesting parable in that the the kind of crux of the story 
as Jesus tells the story, is, is the commendation of the dishonest manager. We're used to, to seeing value and, and virtue upheld by Christ and, and him circling the big virtue and going, this is what we're supposed to be. And this parable has this sort of inverse thing happening where Jesus tells a story of the dishonest manager and then says that the master commended him for his shrewdness. What Jesus is doing in context in, in the book of Luke here is he's just cranking out these parables. If you start reading anywhere around here, you're going to see story after story after story. And this one is really odd. But when we kind of look under the surface of what it says at first glance, I think we'll see something pretty interesting. He's not applauding the uh, dishonest manager for scamming for personal gain as much as praising him and noting his shrewdness as compared to the people of light. And so if we go back and you read it again, you, you see that the way he's being praised, not because of his dishonesty, he's being praised so that the, those people of light, the disciples that Jesus is talking to, would see that at least this one has the, the temerity to be shrewd in his dealings with those around him, as opposed to the people of light who seem to not really have all that much of an angle on anything. What he's not, he's not doing so much uh, praising dishonesty as he is attacking in action. What he's saying is shady people seem to care a whole lot more about their crooked dealings than people of light care about important things. These people who are doing dishonest things seem to at least care about what they're doing at a level that those of us who, who care about the light and who are about Christ and his work seem to care about our stuff. The last episode of Seinfeld was a big deal at the time. I don't know if you know this, but May 14th, 1998 was the last episode of Seinfeld, which means that in two weeks, the Seinfeld finale is old enough to order wine uh, at a restaurant. So if you didn't feel old when you got in here, it was 21 years ago. The finale of Seinfeld happened. It was uh, watched by 76 million people. It was a really big deal. And if you'll remember, I don't know, does anybody, anybody remember the finale of Seinfeld? Yeah, a couple people. Let me tell you what happens. The, the cast of Seinfeld, these, they're going, they're being flown to Los Angeles from or flown to the east coast from the west or the west from the east. I don't remember which one it is. And their, their plane has trouble in the air. And so they have to make kind of an emergency landing. And they land in some small town where their airplane needs to get fixed. And so they're just kind of killing time walking around a downtown street, much like you would walk around downtown Bowling Green. And as they're on one side of the street, there's a man on the other side of the street, and he, he's getting robbed. A guy pulls a gun and, and give me your money and give me your wallet. And the, the guy looks at, at the Seinfeld characters for help. He's robbing me. And true to their character, they just laugh and make fun of him and keep walking. These are these big city New Yorkers who are looking at this guy in small town America getting robbed, and they're like, yeah, well, what, what are you going to do? So they move on, um, and they don't make it too far before they get arrested. And as they're asking why they're being arrested, the, the police officer tells them that there's a new law that's been enacted recently called the Good Samaritan Law. What they were charged with and eventually convicted of was criminal indifference. And this was a, a thing in, in our culture at the time. It was actually a real law that had been enacted in a bunch of different communities. The Good Samaritan Law meant you, you have to render aid or help in some way, if at all possible. You have to try to help somebody. And what this, uh, the characters were assigned with was criminal indifference. Like, they at least had to care. I remember growing up in a pseudo-inner-city neighborhood, and I went to a pretty rough high school. We had riot cops at school before that was cool, so that was kind of our claim to fame. We had cops everywhere before that was a real thing. And we had race riots. I think one of my junior year of high school, there was a big dust-up, and the next day there was dozens of police officers everywhere. It was the kind of school where you learned that fights just happen. And so I remember, I have distinct memories of, like, fights breaking out in this little circle forming, 
and, and being not intrigued, like everybody's supposed to run and watch the fight, but being aggravated that they were in my way. And then I, I had somewhere to be like, oh, it's another fight. Let's just, can you guys just move that way a little bit so I can get to where I need to go? It was a strange, vague annoyance that I carried. A little bit like this criminal indifference of going, oh, you guys, fine. What does this have to do with living an extraordinary life? What does this have to do with uh, the parable we just read? Well, when you look at this parable and you start looking at what other people have to say, because it's really this kind of strange and confusing thing when we read it the first time, going, he's praising the dishonest manager. What is this about? Calvin, John Calvin says this. He says, Jesus charges his disciples and indirectly us, Jesus charges us with highly criminal indifference in our Christian lives. He says, when we, when we read this parable, what we are to read is that we are being charged with highly criminal indifference. And the way we approach dealings with others and implicitly the approach to our own daily lives, we're being charged with indifference in our relationships, in our work, in our recreation, even in our rest, that we just sort of aimlessly wander through life, that we're just on the other sidewalk looking at life go by and thinking, huh, okay. And what I think we need to see this morning is indifference is a really subtle enemy, but a really stout enemy. Think about the way that indifference works when it leads you to procrastination of that thing you were supposed to do, or the inaction then because you don't really want to do it now, and eventually the apathy because, oh, who cares if it gets done? And it is, indifference leads us down a path where we become apathetic. It leads us to a place where inaction becomes the, the defining feature of our lives. I'll do it tomorrow. I don't really want to do it. Who cares if it gets done? I would say that world-changing lives start with life-changing days. But all of us, in some part of us, we want to, to dream big dreams. We want to do big things. We want to change the world. We want to see lives transformed. We want to have an impact. We want to have a legacy. We want to be remembered. We want people to come to our funeral and be like, that person lived. And those sort of world-changing lives, they start with little things, with life-changing days. And so instead of indifference, what we have to chase as a people is an intentionality of presence. An intentionality of presence. Scripture says they will know us by our love. As believers, they'll know us by our love for each other. You've often heard the opposite of love is not hate, but it's indifference. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. It's just not really caring that much. And if they're going to know us by our love, then the thing we have to fight against is not the hate, but it's the indifference of just wandering through life. Recognizing every day is an opportunity for meaning. Every interaction is potentially a divinely set appointment for you and I to walk into. We have a chance to breathe life into those around us or have life breathed into us. But that requires us to be fully present in the moment, to be fully present in every moment. Tish Harrison Warren wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, I read a couple years ago, and uh, it was sort of the genesis of this whole concept, this whole series. I was reading this book, and, and the, the front cover is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so she just walks through a normal day, waking up, brushing my teeth, getting dressed, going to work, taking care of kids, whatever it is that you do, all of these things that are so ordinary on the surface have these deep spiritual meanings behind them. They have deep personal connection to the Lord if we'll just see them that way. She says this, she says, transformation is actually carried out in our real life where we dwell with God and our neighbors. She says, God is yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. God is yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. 
And so while we sit back and we dream of, of the blessing we desire and the things we long for, what she's saying is we have to be fully present where we are if we want to receive the blessing God has for us. We have to actually know and be aware of our surroundings. But if we're indifferent and we just got the blinders on and we're walking through life trying to get to tomorrow, then we'll miss the blessing of today. It's like we were at the pancake breakfast at the high school a couple weeks ago, and the, your ticket is a raffle. And when you drop the, the raffle ticket into the bucket, they say, just remember, you have to be present to win. So they call Bella's name out, and she won, I don't know, some pizza gift card or something. And my six-year-old says, well, what happens if we're not here? And they call my name. And I was like, well, you have to be present to win. And the same thing is true with blessing. Like, you actually have to be present to win. You, you can't be absent from the world entirely and then expect blessing to just fall down upon you. You have to actually be present in the world. You have to be present to give it and receive it. So to be present with others is to make space within ourselves for them. Because I would argue indifference is an invitation to absence. When we find ourselves indifferent, we become absent from those around us. We become absent from the world around us, and we start sort of detaching. And I would argue that it's actually a symptom of something larger. That indifference to the world is a symptom of self-obsession. That when we find ourselves indifferent to the world, what we need to see is not that I'm just having a bad day. It's not that I'm just sort of burnt out on life. It's that actually indifference is directly related to self-obsession, where I am the center of my world. Because on some level, that's all of our perspective. On some level, we're all the star of our own reality show. We're all the center of our own universe. And what happens is when we're too self-concerned, we miss out on the divine interactions that God has set up for us because we're thinking about self first. Tish Warren again says, in the struggles of my average day, I somehow feel I have the right to be annoyed. Does that sound familiar? In the struggles of my average ordinary day, I sort of carry around this idea that I have the right to be annoyed when stuff gets in my way. I've lived in pretty big cities my whole life. And the first time I experienced sort of small town culture, we were at a funeral for one of my wife's grandparents. In small town Texas, cotton fields and cowboy hats, that sort of thing. And we were in the funeral procession down this two-lane country highway. Just two-lane road, dust on either side, cattle out grazing in the distance. You get the picture. And we're in this long funeral procession. Everybody's got their lights on, doing the thing, heading to the, the cemetery. And I start noticing that cars are pulled off the road on the opposite side of the road, on like a 55-mile-an-hour road. Cars are pulled off into the grass. Now, there's nowhere to turn. They're not obviously making way for us to get somewhere. They've just, out of decency, pulled off the road and stopped as if to kind of nod to the, the group that's coming by. I thought it was really something. I was sort of stunned to see it. And then we pulled a little further and further down the road. Then I noticed something else was happening. And it started with there's a, a kind of a rusted old truck and the guy driving it was out of the truck, and he had taken his cowboy hat off, and he had it over his heart, and he was just sitting there watching us go by. Got out of his truck, pulled over, gets out of his truck, takes his hat off, and he's just sort of respectfully watching us go by. And I thought, man, that's humbling. In a sense, for me, it was, it was deeply guilting, because I'd my whole life seen a funeral procession as an annoyance. Because I'm going to miss the light because I got a green, but I got to wait for these people to get through. Would you hurry up and go? I got somewhere to be. I have things to do. I'm important. And this procession is slowing me down. 
and they're out in the middle of nowhere, these people say the most important thing happening is what's happening with these people. I remember in San Antonio when you hear an ambulance, you hear a siren, you see cops coming up behind you, you get out of the way just long enough for them to get in front of you, and then you use them as a human shield to get faster than traffic. So if the ambulance is going and they're going 75, you're like, sweet, I go with 75. And the traffic just kind of bends out of their way and you just follow them as long as you can. And this is how, this is how everybody did. It's how you use emergency vehicles. So the first time I was here and I was on Wooster and I hear an ambulance going towards the hospital, I'm like, okay, sweet, everybody, you know, what am I supposed to do? Just keep driving. If they're in front of me, I'm going to get somewhere faster. And then everybody in Bowling Green pulls over to, this, to the curb. And I was like, what are we doing? Why, why are we stopping? Like, they're not going to pull in to this. They're going to the hospital. You just keep going. Go about your day, people. Don't, don't slow down. I might be late. And then I realized, oh, if that was my loved one in the ambulance, I'd probably want people to get out of their way and do anything possible to make sure they got where they're going pretty quick, wouldn't I? Self-obsessed, I think you're slowing me down. But when I'm others-focused, I look at the ambulance and I go, anything I can do to make sure I don't slow it down. And if it takes me another minute, it might save someone's life. It's just a little trick of the way we see the world. But when we see the world as our own self, as the center, we, be, we begin to become jaded. Because everything is an annoyance in my way. Everything is something stopping me. And then we find ourselves on the path to indifference with everyone else. I'm just not concerned about them. Because I'm chiefly concerned about me. You ask the question, how does the funeral procession affect me, or how does the ambulance affect my commute? We have an issue with self-obsession. The opposite of self-obsession that leads to indifference is having the intentionality of presence. I've said that. What does it look like to have our truck pulled over and our hat off over our heart when we're going through life with others? What does it look like to take time out to slow down, to stop so as to respect or love or bless someone else? What does it look like to get out of the way so that others' loved ones can be cared for? What does that look like in daily life? I would say that becomes an others-focused way of living. The path to getting out of indifference and getting into an extraordinary life is simply finding the intentionality to be others-focused. When you follow Jesus, you give up your right to be self-concerned. That's a big part of following Christ, is you die to self and you live in Christ. You give up your right to be self-concerned. Instead, we become others-focused. And in becoming others focused, we find that every moment of every day is an incredible opportunity to be a blessing to someone. It sounds like, a, like hyperbole. It's really, every moment of every day, I can bless someone. But it's true. Think of the most mundane tasks you do in a day. Blessing in the grocery checkout line. What does that look like? There's a way. I found myself getting to know the lady in the Kroger line that you do the self-check. She and I are starting to have conversations and talking about the weather and talking about whatever, and she's sweet as she can be. And so when I see her, she sees me three or four, seven, 14 times a week as I go in to get one thing. I should just get it all at once, but I'm, you'll you go by any day about 12, 15, you'll see me at Kroger getting three things. But she sees me, we smile, we talk. And I find myself when I'm leaving Kroger now, the simple way I'm going to bless her is when, when you leave the Kroger self-checkout, she has to come back behind you and then she pulls all the bags out just a little bit so the next person that comes up doesn't have to struggle and lick their fingers and try to pull the one plastic bag. And so I'll put all my stuff in the bags and then she'll start walking over and I'll say, I got you. And I'll lick my fingers and I'll pull all those little plastic bags just a little bit and then I get sick because I licked my fingers and touched things at Kroger. But 
And she looks and she goes, oh, well, thanks. And I thought, there it is. That was, it's a tiny little thing and it matters nothing in the history of the universe. No one is going to write a book about that. But in the effort to make every day extraordinary, in the effort to make every moment extraordinary, it's the perfect illustration of how any little tiny thing has a, a downstream impact on people. That just one little thing can change. I mean, that cowboy who gets out of his truck, his old rusted F-150 and sits there with his hat over his heart, doesn't have a sense in the world. He wouldn't remember it in a million years. And here I am. Today I'm going to tell hundreds of people that he is the reason that woke me up to this idea that I had become self-obsessed and he is the chief illustration to get us into a living a life for others. He doesn't know that. He didn't think about that. It wasn't a plan to try to like gain uh, some status in the world. He didn't hope that he was going to become viral on Facebook. He just did the right thing. And so for us, being others focused leads us into the next right decision, into the next right move, into the next thing that is about blessing someone else along the journey. Moving from indifference to intentionality of presence. I know where I am and I'm intentionally going to look to see how I can bless someone. What's at stake in this. Jesus said, if you're trusted with little, you'll be trusted with much. If you're faithful with little, then you'll be faithful with much. Do you want to be used by God in big things? Do you want to do world-changing stuff? Do you want to achieve God-sized dreams? Jesus says, faithful with little before you're faithful with much. You're trusted with little to see if you can be trusted with much. And so it isn't about how big can I dream, it's how small can I get. How granular can I look at my day? How little can my blessing be so that I can show God I will be faithful in the little things? I'll be faithful in the interaction. I'll be faithful in the way that I deal with my kids' teachers or in the pickup line or at Kroger. Be faithful with the guy that's trying to help me load up uh, mulch at Home Depot. What does that look like? But if we're faithful with the little, then we begin to enter into the greater. John 10.10, message version Jesus says, I, can have, uh, I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Jesus says, I came to the, that they would have life to the full, that they would have life overflowing in abundance. Eugene Peterson translates it this way, I came that they would have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. That's the thing that Jesus came to promise. Jesus came to offer extraordinary life, more and better life than you and I have ever dreamed of. Compare that with how we feel on the average Wednesday. You, you usually get home from work on Wednesday. You get back from doing the shopping on Wednesday and you get home and you think, gosh, this is more and better life than I ever dreamed of. Or do you say, oh, tomorrow's only Thursday. And you work through the rut and you work through the, the routine and you just go, gosh, is this really all there is? Jesus came to bring an extraordinary life. And I would say that the path there is simple, even if it isn't easy. The path to extraordinary life is simple, even if it isn't easy. Like with your kids, faithful with little, faithful with much. Do you teach a kid how to drive a car first or tie their shoes? Tie your shoes so you can walk without tripping. Then let's ride a bike and make sure you can get that done. And then eventually we'll graduate up to a car. But you don't start with a car, you start with little. Simple things. But for a kid, simple is not always easy. Tying your shoes is difficult until it's easy and you move up. And then riding a bike is difficult and we meet a few trees and poles along the way and then you get better and you step up. And then you drive a car and every 16-year-old has that first little skirmish 
first backing up in the parking lot and I hit old Mrs. Johnson's, you know, oh, so, sorry. And, and that happens. But it's, it's one level at a time. And as we get better at things, we tend to get bigger things handed to us. Same is true with God. Faithful with little and trusted with much. Annie Dillard said it this way, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. So we think about the grand scope of my life and what I want to be when I grow up and how I want to be remembered sweet by and by when my great-great-grandchildren are talking about me by the fire. And what she's saying is, your life is not defined by this great grand dream you have. Your life is simply defined by your days. How you spend your life is simply how you spend your days. And do you spend your days in an extraordinary way? Or do you hope that all of your ordinary days and all of your self-obsession is going to one day lead to some other great breakthrough? Because what scripture would say is it won't. That the path to extraordinary lives is extraordinary days. to start with the little things. In that book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, the line that is uh, most quoted, I was looking up on a website all the quotes from that book as I was remembering what I had read, and the most quoted line in the book is, everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. And everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. Everyone wants the big thing. No one wants to do the little thing that makes it happen. Diligence and deliberate living is not very sexy, but it works. Our job is to steward today. That we've been entrusted with a gift, and that gift is breath in our lungs today. So we have the opportunity to either use it well in an extraordinary way, or to slough it off as just one more day in the chain. But what's true is today is full of promise and opportunity, and we have to care enough to fight for it. We have to care enough to fight through the indifference and to be something greater. If you're a parent, being present, simply being present, makes a huge impact on your children. If you're a spouse, a neighbor, a friend, what kind of blessing can you be? What kind of meaning can your day take on simply by opening your eyes to focus on others? At work, at school, Whose life might you change by simply being intentionally present in the day with someone else? We close with a story that we're going to call the Xbox story. The Xbox story was first, I first heard it by a guy named Tim Sanders. Tim Sanders used to be the chief solutions officer at Yahoo back in the internet boom. That they had enough money that they paid someone just to sort of make stuff up. Sweet guy wrote this great book called Love is the Killer App. And what he was arguing was that in in work, in business, in life, as the chief solutions officer at Yahoo, he said the thing that we're missing is love. And we we lack a love for the people we work with, and as a result, our work suffers. It's this really compelling idea from a guy who wouldn't say he was a Christian, but absolutely held out that they'll know that we're different by our love. They'll know that we are Christians by our love. And he said love is the missing ingredient. And he tells this story. He was consulting with a tech company. He was doing some, some freelance work, and he was challenging them to be better managers. He said, you know, if you, if you hadn't talked to your children in two, three weeks or two, three months, we wouldn't call you a very good parent. If you hadn't checked in with your spouse in two or three weeks or two or three months, we wouldn't call you a very good spouse. 
And he says, but in the tech world, we have managers that haven't actually been face-to-face with their employees for two or three months. That everything is done digitally because we have these engineers sitting over in this room and we have the manager sitting over in this room and all they're kind of doing is, is chatting and emailing and doing digital stuff. But he goes, if you haven't seen them in two or three months, maybe you're not a very good manager. And one manager that was in this talk heard this and felt convicted. His name was Steve. Steve said, that's absolutely true. I probably haven't seen it. It was March at this time. He said, I haven't seen anybody since our January kind of performance reviews from the previous year. I haven't actually gone face-to-face with any of them. And they're a great team. They're great people. I should really go do this. So Steve uh, decides he's going to be more present. He walks cubicle to cubicle across the street at the engineer's area, and he's going through all of his direct reports, and he's telling them what he likes about them. He's telling them they're doing a great job. He's encouraging them. He's asking questions. How's the family? Tell me more. And he says, I feel really good about it. I feel like that was a, that was a good decision. I felt love feels good. He starts checking in. He starts becoming intentionally present in their life. I would just say he simply starts caring. He sloughs off indifference, and he decides to be part of their life. A few days later, one of his guys, one of his engineers named Lenny, shows up with a package and puts it on Steve's desk. Not his birthday, not Christmas, not anniversary, no reason, just a random day. And he puts the package on on Steve's desk, and Steve goes, what's this? And he goes, just open it. So he opens it up, and he finds a brand new Xbox. He says, why are you giving me a brand new Xbox? And Lenny said, oh, you know, I've been working here for two years now. Moved out here, left my family, take this tech job. Two years I've been doing this. I have no friends, no affirmation, because really I have no love. I do this work for 10, 12 hours a day. I go home to a dark and empty apartment, and the next day I come back and do it all again. Said I stare at a screen all day. I go home, and I hope that the screen in my house can distract me long enough to help me get to the next day. So it said, after about a year and a half, I got a little bit down. He was pretty depressed. Coworkers, we don't talk. We're all in our computers all day. He goes, I just, I've never been so lonely. So about a year and a half into my job, he says, I got on a chat room about suicide. And they laid out this whole process of how you do it, he said. Did you start, he says, by buying a really pretty weapon? Something that you're not afraid of, you can admire. He goes, so I bought a chrome-plated 9mm. It's beautiful. He goes, and then what they would instruct you to do if you want to work your way up to this is you, you take it out every day and you just look at it. And then when you're comfortable with it, you start sort of holding it, feeling its weight. And he goes, over time, you just get more and more comfortable. Because lately I've been getting really close, feeling really comfortable. I thought by this time I wouldn't be here anymore. He said, Steve, you came into my cubicle the other day. You told me I help you sleep at night because I get my work turned in early. You said I was funny in email and that's hard to do. He said, Steve, you looked at me and you said, Lenny, I'm glad you came into my life. He said, Steve, I remember hearing uh, you whining in January, when we were doing our review, you were whining about because you had a new baby, you couldn't afford the Xbox you'd been wanting. So after that day that you came into my cubicle, I went home and I opened up the cigar box where I've been keeping this 9mm and I took it out and I held it and I realized that the whole plan was off, that I couldn't do it. Because you said you were glad that I came into your life. 
said, so last night I took that gun and I walked over to the pawn shop and I got what I could get for it. And in turn, I remembered you really wanted an Xbox. So I went and bought you this Xbox and I figured that's a pretty good gift for saving my life. World-changing lives start with life-changing days. Eternity-changing lives start with life-changing days. That you and I have the opportunity in every interaction, in every moment with every person, to be present. To be intentionally present, to fight off the indifference of self-obsession, and to be present with those around us. In a world where criminal indifference and self-obsession are ordinary, you were created and invited to live an extraordinary life. There's ways to get there. If you go, gosh, I don't know how I get from here to there. Is there a plan? Is there a process? I'd say there's three simple things you could do if you go, I don't know how to break where I'm in. I don't know how to get out of the rut that I'm in. I'd say, number one, be faithful with little to be faithful with much. So, So be faithful with three little things. The first thing I would say is be faithful to spend time with God. And there's one rut and habit you want to be in. What does it look like to spend time with God? You say, I haven't opened my Bible in a long time. I haven't done a devotional in a long time. I start my morning, and the first thing I do is I look at my phone, and I go from there. And I would say, what if you gave it two minutes to start? What if you did a little thing? What if you opened up and you read one verse? The book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. And you read one verse, and you said, God, help it be true in me today. And you went about your day. And then before you know it, you'll be doing two verses or 10 minutes. Or, and it'll grow. But you're faithful with little. Start somewhere. Faithful to spend time with God. Second thing, be faithful to find real community. Whether that's a community group, whether that's something else entirely, be faithful to find people who will know when you've turned in on yourself and you've become self-obsessed. Be faithful to, to live with people who can tell you in love and honesty, hey, I think you lost the plot. Third and final is to be faithful to being others-focused. To when you get in the car, to when you show up to work, to when you wake up in the morning, whenever it is, to go, God, help me be others-focused today. Because my hunch is everyone in this room, if we thought about it long enough, could find the Lenny in our life. The person who we know may not be on the brink, but might need a touch, might need some love, might need some encouragement. Who is that in your life? Jesus said he came to bring real life more and better than you ever dreamed of. An extraordinary life. So we fight off the indifference, we become intentionally present, and with the little bit of every day, we will build that together. It's a big promise for tomorrow, and it starts with the faithful little thing of today. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your willingness to let us ease into life with you. Father, I'm grateful that uh, you don't expect me to be uh, perfect on day one. You don't expect me to be uh, revolutionary on day one. But you invite me into meaningful work anyway. Father, as we as a community consider what it means to live an extraordinary life, I pray that you would find us people chasing extraordinary days. And within those days, that's hours, and with those hours, it's just minutes that we would have extraordinary interactions with people throughout our town, that we would have an others-focused sense about us. Father, our prayer is that you would convict us of the places where uh, we've become a little bit self-obsessed, where the world has begun to revolve around us 
and where that has led to an indifference as it relates to others. Father, with that conviction, will you remind us of the beautiful grace that you came to offer? The everyday, brand new sort of mercy that you give us, the everyday is a new opportunity sort of life that you've carved out for us. So that as we walk into a tomorrow that can look different than today, Father, we would have everything we need the inspiration and the equipping, God, that we would know exactly where we need to be and exactly what it means to live a life, an extraordinary life following you. So, Father, inspire our hearts to do just that. Give us the endurance to run the race well. Thank you for Jesus, for making meaning in lives. God, thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Continue.